0: Everybody and welcome to this episode of Haunted Histories with yours truly, Penny Griffiths Morgan. Now, most of you who know me will know one of my favourite things about this show is the fact that I get on such an amazing variety of guests. And the fact that I am sort of starting to get known in the history field as well as the paranormal field means that I have an amazing I, I get I get given names of people I should speak to. And this the chat we're going to be talking to shortly. And he's coming to us all the way from Montreal, or near to Montreal. We've already had this conversation near to Montreal in Canadian terms. He was introduced to me by the wonderful Paul Woodage from World War II TV. And, and when I was first on Paul's show last October, I think it was, and Neil Storey was on it with me, Paul afterwards messaged me and said, oh, you've got to speak to David O'Keefe. You've got to speak to David O'Keefe. So I'm speaking to David O'Keefe, or should that be Professor David Okay. You know, we don't just, we don't just have anybody on this show, you know, they have to have a title.
1: <laughs> well, there it is. Yes. Professor would be, I guess, technically the title, but yeah. Call me Dave. That's call fine. you Dave.
0: Dave, call from Dave. Dave from Canada. Dave
1: there's from Canada. There's only a couple. No, it can't yeah, be many of only you. only a couple.
0: No, there's only a few people out there. Yeah. Well, thank you ever so much for taking time to be on Haunted Histories, Dave. I do appreciate it. I know we've been chatting for ooh, nearly an hour um, apart from <laughs> kids turning internet off on my side because he was having a tantrum because he couldn't get his phone to charge um that's why he turned it off um but we've been talking about all things sort of history all things everything else and when your speciality and i sort of i did actually read and i I can recommend this book to anyone who's got an interest in history and and one of the things i will say is it's not written like a textbook because some history books can be quite sort of um dry Yeah. Labored. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even I struggle to read some of them and I kind of enjoy the learning side of it. But this book here called One Day in August is um that one of I think you've had two books out now, haven't you, Dave?
1: Um actually, yeah, there's two books. This is the second edition of this book. Yeah. And this is the updated version.
0: Okay. So without give you know, without being blindingly obvious, it's about the Dieppe raids in August 1942 and they took place on the 19th
1: 19th of August 1942
0: yeah now what's what's fascinating about them is the the in my view the misconceptions about what they were because they were horrific we'll talk numbers in a second like the amount of deaths but and prisoners and everything else and and the fact that I think somebody I read I think it was in your book I read it that somebody said it was like a maritime version of the charge of the light brigade it was that much of a you were all gonna die basically why why that particular element in history what got you interested in Dieppe in the first place
1: Okay, for those of you who know anything about Dieppe, you know that there is a direct uh, connection with Canada and Canadian history. The vast majority of the 6,000 men, almost 90% of the 6,000 men who took part, were Canadians. And as a result, it actually was one of the worst disasters out of the 6,000 men. Uh, 1,000 were killed in just a few hours. And about another two and a half thousand ended up as prisoners of war. So we're talking massive casualties in a one day, as Churchill would call it, butcher and bolt raid. And as such, it really has left its mark on Canadian history. There is nothing like it in Canadian history, particularly Canadian military history. This is by far the worst day that Canada's ever had. It's our Gallipoli, if you will. It's our, you know, uh, charge of the light brigade is probably Mm -hmm. a good way of putting it. Um, So as a result, as a Canadian military historian, every time I was setting about working on Normandy or Hong Kong or whatever else, you always measured it by that one day in August, 1942. So as a result, it was um, a natural touchstone, if you will, for any Canadian military historian. But more importantly, I think one of the reasons why was not just the enormous cost, but the mystery surrounding the intent behind the raid. In other words, after it was done, there were certain excuses that were kind of floated out there right but none of the excuses for why the operation were was launched actually made any sense and it left a bitter legacy not only with Canadians but it also created one of the biggest mysteries of the second world war in other words right. what was yep put on for
0: right so did you start looking in because you you you've actually you served in the um Canadian forces the military yourself didn't you uh, Black- yeah
1: yeah, had a, a thoroughly unspectacular career as an infantry officer with the uh, Royal Highland Regiment of Canada, the Black Watch, right. Canada's Black Watch. And um, there is a connection because the Black Watch, a main participant in the Dieppe raid, did send one company. Mm-hmm. And that company ended up landing behind the Royal Regiment of Canada from Toronto mm-hmm. um, on a little beach just outside of the main port of Dieppe. There's Mm -hmm. a little place called Puy, P-U-Y-S. And it was known as Blue Beach. And the Royal Regiment were absolutely slaughtered coming in over Blue Beach. And the Black Watch basically came in on their tails and uh, ended up basically hunkering under a cliff uh, under massive German fire and then end up going into captivity for the rest of the war. Mm -hmm. So, again, there is this incredible bitter legacy and the you know the uh, the lack of understanding as to why we were there in the first place okay. what were we trying to accomplish
0: so i can understand i can understand that i mean i think one of the statistics you put in the book um i think it was in your book i read this um it was something like one man every 90 seconds was dying over a nine-hour period
1: yeah something yeah like well you have you just, have 1 allied soldiers sailors and airmen who yeah. died the Vast majority about 907 were canadian yeah but yeah. you have you have british royal marines who were involved british navy raf in the sky mm-hmm. you have poles who were fighting with the IRA, uh, raf checks mm-hmm. etc norwegians um and of course there's also the americans a lot of people tend to forget mm-hmm. that the americans are making their combat debut in europe Mm -hmm. In the summer of 1942, a small, you know, 50 man unit, but it really is an allied effort. And it's all done under the legendary or the infamous, depending on how you want to look at him, Lord Louis Mountbatten. Mm-hmm. and it was all under his combined operations. So you have a disaster, you have a mystery, you have an incredible cast of characters that have royal bloodlines and you know empire building on their minds and everything else. So it it becomes a very intoxicating stew to say the Mm
0: -hmm. least well I mean I was I I I was engrossed in the book I think I mean even a book that size I I was finding excuses why I could sit and read you know I was supposed to be doing the day job but it was like no the sun's shining I'm gonna lie outside for an hour and guess what I'm gonna read you know kids shut up amuse yourselves I'm I'm reading so and there was stuff in there that did actually I I would actually go Oh my God, and then read it out to my husband. he goes, go, nah. And I'm like, it's, it's here. Look, he has got the evidence, it's here. And so it, it really was an eye-opener because I admit I didn't know much about Dieppe. When mm. when Woody said, Why don't you do a show on the ghosts of Dieppe? I was like, I don't really know anything about Dieppe. Um, to my sort of, I should have done, but now I do. Now I know a lot more, and it's fascinating, and I'll learn, keep learning as every more I find. But The the common sort of thing for Dieppe, and and I've seen this, and now I know why when anyone says something sarcastic to you about Dieppe and says, oh, didn't mention pin trade then. I now know why that's, Ah. that you go, ah! Yeah. Everyone seems to think Dieppe was a trial to see if D-Day would work.
1: That was something that was floated out um, two years later after D-Day succeeded. (laughs) Right. <laughs> that was floated out ex post facto by Mountbatten uh, as a way of distancing himself from the disaster, covering up the ultra secret core of what they were actually trying to do, mm-hmm. and also to, to try to placate you know the canadians for the most part who felt that they had been thrown like lambs to the slaughter and they didn't understand why Mm -hmm. so there were a lot of excuses that were given that was one of the big ones Mm -hmm. um and there is absolutely no weight or credibility to that um simply because dieppe architecturally the raid itself is nothing like normandy no (laughs) it's you know normandy is a massive invasion Mm -hmm. where you're taking hundreds of thousands of men and moving them across the English Channel, Mm -hmm. setting up shop, building up, breaking out, and going after the heart of Nazi Germany. Yeah, Dieppe is 6,000 men going across on a one-day return ticket operation, a butcher and bolt, as Churchill would call it. Completely different. OK, so it's it has nothing to do with that to start. No, and then, of course, there was a whole bunch of other excuses. It was put on to to placate the Russians. Um, yeah, that's another,
0: yeah, I, I yeah. did not know that one. I thought that one was quite yeah. interesting one. That, wasn't it something to do with the fact Stalin was moaning that he was having to fight the Germans too much? And he wanted them to have another front to be fighting on so that he could push them back.
1: Exactly. It's what I is called the second front. In other yeah. words, but only an invasion would do that. Not a one day little pinprick raid.
0: Yeah, that's not going that's not
1: no, that's not going to do that. And of course, you know, when you're looking for excuses after the fact, because it was a disaster, and I don't think anybody expected it was ever going to be that much of a disaster mm-hmm. uh, or a disaster at all. They expected that it would take probably some heavy casualties, but never in the proportions that we've already discussed. Yeah. And so as a result, human nature gets in and yeah. the finger pointing starts and then the distancing. So as a historian, that's where you I had to start. Was literally picking apart all the layers of either misinformation or excuses, and testing them. It wasn't just a question of throwing them on the, you know, on the, on the in the bin, mm-hmm. but rather it was testing each one of them like a pillar of the story to mm-hmm. find out how strong that pillar was. Mm-hmm. And most of them just ev- evaporated mm-hmm. very quickly because they weren't built on any of the contemporary evidence. A lot of what was happening was you would get historians after the war who did not have access to the kind of material that we now have access to, Mm. who then were forced to rely on oral testimony from the players who obviously had something invested and were trying to cover up whatever.
0: And a lot of those who survived were on a need-to-know basis. All they knew is what their job was best. They didn't know the bigger...
1: Exactly. The bigger... Well, that's the thing. If you're the average infantryman or commando at the front line you have your your war is 50 yards wide 50 yards mm-hmm. deep and you're told take that bunker take that building take that headquarters get this you're not you don't understand the significance of what you're doing yeah. that's just the compartmentalization of the way the military works it I is have as you said because you if to you know.
0: knew we're going to get onto what they were there for in a second yeah yeah sure think, brilliant um, oh, um if they'd known if, if one of our you know you had what over 60 percent of them were captured in one way or the other mm-hmm. I think I worked out the like for 60 percent yeah,
1: 60%. yeah. So
0: they would have been tortured to find out what they were doing there we know this we know this because that's how it works mm-hmm. if they'd known the reason they were there there's an awful would- lot that could have happened to lengthen the war even further
1: yeah, I think I think we've probably wet everybody's appetite enough. We could probably tell them what they were there for. Um, Go what, for it. <laughs> yeah, what what the research? And as as I think I mentioned, it was you know it's twenty five years of research. I've gone through one hundred and fifty thousand pages of material. I've tested all the existing hypotheses for why this operation went. But about twenty five years ago, when I was in England, made a discovery that there was actually a newly um, forming commando unit. That was put together specifically to pinch any or capture any material to do with the infamous German Enigma machines. Because, as some of you may have seen in the imitation game, you know how brilliant Alan Turing and all of his cohorts, Billy Knox and Gordon Welchman and all the others at Bletchley were. They needed that one big break to get them in. Kind of think about doing a crossword. If you're doing a crossword blank, it's going to be tough. Yeah. If you've got a couple of little breaks and you know what words to put in, it can make it a lot easier, right? So the idea was that you needed to capture the kind of material, either it be the machine, parts of the machine, the key books, all the um, user manuals, if you will, to Mm -hmm. help set it up on a daily basis, to encrypt all the top secret messages that the Germans were sending. Mm -hmm. Then you get your break and you can start code breaking and then mining the information that the Germans are sending to each other for your own purposes. This is massively important for the British because in 1940, they're holding on by their fingernails Mm -hmm. and they're trying to keep the empire together. And their resources are stretched beyond the breaking point. So to have insider information, you then know where you need to reinforce, where you can attack, what the enemy is going to do, all within relative terms, mm. of course. But it's it's a, what we call a force enhancer in the military. In wow. other words, it gives you the ability to take your limited budget and put it in the appropriate areas. Okay. And so it becomes massively important, even to the point where somebody like Churchill, who was completely enamored by cryptography and cryptanalysis all the way back to World War One. Is involved in this as well. I mean, he's sponsoring, literally sponsoring what we call pinch raids. And Dieppe wasn't the first. No. As a matter of fact, they the British have been doing this since 1940. They were having incredible success up in Norway and other parts in 1941, where they actually, because of the success in their in their pinch operations, were able to break in, kind of like what you saw in the imitation game, into the three-rotor version of the German naval. Enigma. Now, to to give you an example, I think the odds of breaking into a three-rotor Enigma is 150 million, million, million to one without Mm -hmm. any captured material to help speed up the process. That was for the three-rotor version. Well, the Germans um, had already started to make a four-rotor, which was going to up that ante. So basically, the odds of getting into the four-rotor when it came in um, was going to be an otherworldly, and being a historian, I had to look this number up to see if it actually existed, um, <laughs> because I'd never seen anything so long on a page. Was ninety-two septillion to one, million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion, septillion, and there seven,
0: you go. Seven, seven,
1: yeah, there you go. Seven. Hours. So yeah. I didn't even know that number existed. I found out, um, but you can imagine it's like winning a national lottery every single day for 150 straight years. That those are the odds. Think about that. Those are the odds. So you can understand that if you're an Alan Turing, you want something that is going to help you dramatically get in. So the British had developed this idea this this they were going to use combined operations raids under Lord Louis eventually under Lord Louis Mountbatten to pinch material under the cover of these raids. Because these raids could be dressed up as anything. We're doing it for propaganda purposes. We're doing it to help the Russians. We're doing it for this. But the reality was that every single one of them had a particular component or components within the plan, contingencies mm-hmm. built in to be able to target the areas that they knew had this material and to capture it and get it out. And so Dieppe, as to make a very long story short, Dieppe basically is what we have is a a, a massive pinch rate in 1942. So this is what leads us to Dieppe in 1942. And of course, as you can imagine, um, that discovery has completely flipped our understanding for 80 years or for 75 years completely on its head. And that has changed it for sure.
0: I must admit, before I read your book, I had thought that if Diet was a precursor for Normandy, it was a pretty ridiculous one because, <laughs> you know, you can make new aeroplanes, you can't make new men to fly, or women, We were talking about the ATA earlier, you can't make new people to fly them. Not yeah. You know, you have to wait 18 years for them to grow up, you know? Yeah. So I thought allowing that many men, you know, experienced fighting men to be killed, was not the kind of sacrifice I would have expected military leaders to make
1: yeah they they trotted out the idea that this was to learn lessons and of course you know that was what Mountbatten said and of course anybody who was involved with the planning just went yeah no we we already knew what lessons you know we we didn't have to learn those lessons that badly yeah we, we knew that we knew this like there there was nothing there so you know that's that that's part of how Mountbatten was attempting to cover because remember what I've talked to you about Mm -hmm. about Alan Turing and about Bletchley Park and about you know cryptography that was classified ultra secret so above most secret yeah and it had a very limited um distribution and it was kept secret for about 35 years after Mm -hmm. the war I think it was it's even people who worked,
0: 30s, yeah, even so. people who worked at Bletchley, because I told you that I deal with elderly. I did have a client. One yep. of the care homes had a lady in there who um, she had dementia. This is how secretive it was. She had dementia. And she couldn't talk anymore. But they used to hear, and I don't know if you'll be able to hear this through the microphone. They used to hear her going,
1: "Yeah, oh wow, sending out Morse."
0: She was yeah. doing Morse code, and nobody yeah. ever knew what she was doing. They just thought it was tapping because of her dementia, and it was actually. I think they had some Boy Scouts come in to do sort of like. Yeah, you know, they
1: realised she was actually. One of the
0: scouts went. She's doing Morse code, and they were telling me this, and I went, and I was working at how old she was, and I worked out in sort of 1940, she'd have been about 20. Yeah. And unmarried, uh, and I yep. said, did she do any war service? And they went, and they were like, no, but her sister used to say so, right? She used to get a bus to somewhere called Bletchley. Oh, there you go. I was like, oh, there you go. And when they started looking into it, yeah, she'd worked at Bletchley. Now, whether I don't think her name isn't one of the ones that's like one of the famous names. But obviously, she was doing Morse code and listening and, and yeah. sending messages at Bletchley. And apparently she'd never told her family what she'd done in her mm-hmm. war service. And because that is
1: quite common. I would say her. 99% of the people who worked either at Bletchley or associated with code breaking, kept it quiet. Mm-hmm. And it was a matter of honor. It, yeah. it, it was just, look, this is what we have to do. We This is what we had to do to win a war. And we're still doing it in the cold war and today. Mm-hmm. So as a result, it is hypersensitive, without a doubt. And that was the that was the difficult part about researching this uh, at first. And then finally, when I approached GCHQ and I took the hypothesis to GCHQ, um, I was blown away because within two days of receiving my five-page email, <laughs> weighing everything out, um, their wonderful historian who's retired now, Tony Comer, just sent me some documents which just sealed the deal mm. um you know what i told you about about this actual pinch policy this mm. doctrine the fact that they were doing this beforehand this wasn't some ad hoc thing thrown on at the end that they were actually building up raids specifically to throw the germans off the scent yeah it was absolutely fascinating it, and, it, the um, book
0: your book was fascinating yeah. i was I absolutely... mean, now and if and i haven't... hadn't had
1: that if i hadn't had that evidence I wouldn't have had the confidence to get up and shoot my mouth off and say, this is what Dieppe is all about. <laughs> so, you know, that was the interesting part about this, but-,
0: but. That's the fun thing as a historian, when you say something, but you don't, you don't hold up the evidence at the same time. Somebody goes, no, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. And you go, well, actually I've got this, yeah. I've got this, I've got this. And, and they said, where did you find those? And I said, I looked for them you know I'm not I'm not just coming out of this because some some voice told me it in my sleep I'm, I'm actually yeah. this conclusion because this is what the route I'm like you're, you're being led to so now another name that's associated with diet. oh yes uh, um you know who I'm going to here oh yes Ian Fleming Ian yep. Fleming. Now, anyone who who most most people, I think, know that Ian Fleming, obviously the writer of James Bond, did have a he was a, a kind of secret service himself. It was just, mm-hmm. you know, he was naval, wasn't he? Naval. Naval. Naval intelligence. Yeah. 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 Now, the common misconception is he was just there watching as a spectator. And when I sort of read that to begin with, I thought, well, hang on, he's pretty highbrow to be a spectator. What happened? That would be like having, you know, if he got killed, that's a pretty highbrow person to just be watching.
1: Yes. Yeah. He had to have been there for a reason. Mm. And sure enough, the evidence does show that without a doubt. As a matter of fact, the the report he wrote, (laughs) which (laughs) I was able to use in the book and the fascinating, I mean, if we go back to Ian Fleming, Fleming, uh, uh, that was one of the big problems as a historian, and I'm sure you deal with this when you get into very popular or sensational types of characters or subjects, right? It's walking in a minefield. So in other words, as soon as I realized, and I mentioned before that I had found this this, uh, report based on this commando unit that was raised to pinch material, it was raised by ian fleming mm-hmm. so as a result immediately i thought oh my god what have i got myself into because now i have to deal with the cult of fleming mm-hmm. um, you know because so many people are you know either think he was and it's very polarizing he was either bond himself running around sleeping with everything he could find and it was biographical the bad yeah. guy of mm-hmm. course um, or he was just some sort of faceless bureaucrat who just had an incredible imagination and didn't do anything. The chocolate sailor, as they used to refer to him as. It's not it's yeah, believe it or not. Um, he's neither. He's in between. Yeah. He's uh, He's Marmite, as we like to say. Um, the fasc- he's fascinating, but he was ex- much more important than anyone would ever understand, perhaps, before this, in the scheme of not only naval intelligence, but also (laughs) the command setup. Um, He was the um, assistant to the director of naval intelligence, John Godfrey, who was a a very powerful empire builder at the time. And uh, Fleming was his go-to guy, his hatchet man, his ideas man. And whenever there was something a little bit uh, Machiavellian and nefarious, um, you know that Fleming had his fingerprints all over it. So whenever there was something that needed to be solved, a real problem or a nut that needed to be cracked, you know that Fleming was going to get tapped on the shoulder. And the fascinating part was this is a man who was liaisoning with everyone. His portfolio had him working with MI5, MI6, SOE, political warfare. Alistair and- Crowley. Just keep it, even Alistair Crowley at one particular point. I mean, what I like about Fleming is Fleming was academic enough to know when to apply proper methodology and reel it in, Mm. but he was creative enough to go down any single avenue that may lead to something, even though he never knew where it was going to lead to, if there was going to be a possible benefit, he was going to examine it. Didn't mean he was going to take it at the end of the day. As a historian, I guess I'm kind of the same way. In other words, I am always curious. I won't automatically say no, but I will go out there and I will test it. And at the end of the day, if it doesn't make sense, then okay, thank you very much and I'll move on. So, and that's probably what leads us to where we are today. But um, Fleming um, Fleming is fascinating because he was liaising with the Americans. He was, I mean, he was um, probably the worst person you would want on a ship off of Dieppe in case of capture because his knowledge <laughs> of the entire allied intelligence landscape, I don't believe would have been, I mean, there may have only been one or two other people who understood it as well as him. Yeah. But and that's the key because the reason he was there, of course, is he was the anchor man in the relay to get the material out
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and to bring it back to England. Those were his direct orders. Um, you know, his commandos were going to go in, they were going to hit a naval headquarters and a whole bunch of ships in the in the harbor. They were going to pinch all the signals material that they could, um, hopefully scoop up anything to do with the brand new version of the Enigma, this four rotor, as I mentioned. And then they were going to get it out of there. And he was going to bring it back like a holy grail. And Mm -hmm. of course, naval intelligence loved this because that would put them in in the highest esteem with Churchill. Mountbatten loved it because combined operations was the delivery vehicle for Mm -hmm. getting this. And you can see how they were licking their chops when it came to what the potential benefit was, not only from the, you know, the practical code-breaking sense, but how Churchill, they would have risen or in his eyes, his esteem, they, they would have been, I would argue, probably untouchable.
0: The favorite and child.
1: That, yeah, and that was the sense on the ground at the time uh, in Whitehall, mm. that basically something's cooking with Dieppe, and if they pull this off, there'll be no ceiling for Mountbatten. Yeah. So there's a lot riding on
0: this. So to cut a long story short, they mm. this this raid, this pinch raid, very well planned. We're not going to go into the whole planning of it. If people want to yeah. read it, grab a copy of your book. Um, one day in August. I completely forgot what it was called then for a second. I'm so sorry. One day okay. in August. Um, And they can learn all about it. It's really worth it. But let's just say the raid didn't go to plan. Nope. Some people were late. They got, their boat got held up slightly, if I remember rightly. Yeah. Um, I think the original plan was to have bombers come in to soften the Germans. There were,
1: yeah, there were a lot of things. I mean, uh, one of the problems with Mountbatten by this time was there was a, he, he was becoming very hubristic and so was his, pl- his planning mm-hmm. staff. They had never had a defeat, let alone a check in all the other pinch raids. So they were starting to cut corners on planning.
0: Their ego was writing wrong before. checks that their body couldn't exactly. cash.
1: Exactly, you got it. In other words, nothing went wrong before, why should it go now, you know? Why should yeah. it go wrong now? Well, it did. And there were a lot of moving parts with the DEP operation, a lot of things of course as they say in the military no plan ever survives first contact. There were some contingencies built in, but they were still lacking in others. there was there, there was a lot of ship you know like um, uh, they had a lot of problems, slipshod planning. Um, you know anyway, it all turned out to be a massive disaster of a proportion I don't think anybody ever expected.
0: I think the term we use in the-, <clears throat> the shit show.
1: The worst possible. Mm. yeah and when you're talking about a thousand dead in just six hours, yeah yeah, without a doubt. Yeah.
0: I mean the description. I think it was one of the descriptions of one of the chaps who made it that you interviewed, and he said walking through it was you—you you were walking through this pink mist that tastes coppery. Yeah. Like and I'm yeah. reading this, going, ah, the imagery and that. What he's actually tasting, and obviously dead people, like yeah. smithereens. Yeah, and, it's and yeah, the, the fact it was—you know, it—it it would have been like shooting fish in a barrel for the Germans. It, well,
1: especially for the one area that. You know, we want to talk about today is this little area, um, which is just uh, outside of Dieppe, because Dieppe wasn't the only area that they were hitting. They mm-hmm. were hitting a couple of uh, areas on the flanks. And there's this one tiny little notch, if you will, in the cliffs just outside of Dieppe, and it's called Puy, mm-hmm. P U Y S. And this yes. was codenamed Blue Beach.
0: Well, and the this beaches had really, code names as colors didn't yeah. they do you think yeah. that's another reason why so many people are fixated on normandy because the beaches there had their code names and you know the one yeah. beach ever I, I just i, I mean I it think
1: could very well be i mean they, you know, they did it for pure, yeah they did it for pure simplicity at dieppe i mean it was all colors i mean you had orange and yellow on the flanks you had green and blue on the inner flanks and then you had red and white uh on the main beaches right in Dieppe itself and if anybody's ever been to Dieppe and if you walk along Dieppe's main beach with all the hotels you you understand what a tough nut this was to crack. Mm. Um and then of course when you get to Normandy you have um, more traditional code names, you know, where you have Utah and Omaha and Gold and Sword gold and, and, know, yeah. and things like that. Yeah, with that, mm. that. But Blue Beach now um I mean there's a Blue Beach association, there's uh you know, there Blue Beach has um how do I put this? It it strikes a nerve because <laughs> in that time, the Royal Regiment of Canada suffered about 97% casualties. Mm. Three waves of men went in. The first one was almost completely gunned down. The second one, about half of them. And then the third one were just running over the remains of the men who were floating in the water. Yeah. And um, it was absolutely terrifying. Um, you know, they couldn't get off the beach. There was one little exit and the germans had three machine guns on it there was mortars up above and most of the men um, one of them that i talk about in the book ron beale um, arrived on the third wave and whether it be fate or luck or whatever else he was able to make it to across the beach and under the 100 foot cliffs
0: was he the chap that you write about in the book that you told him what it was about so he and yeah. what his friend yeah. beale died for that, yeah. that he died needlessly so to speak that was a genuine because what we haven't mentioned is 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 the fact that um and this is linking to the navy as well is the fact that obviously to get stuff to the uk as an island we rely on boats bringing stuff and you had the convoys coming across the atlantic and and all around the north sea and everything else were getting absolutely annihilated um, and, and uh, to begin with, they managed to start help when they, they cracked the three the rotor, three rotor yeah. enigma, they were able to, and then all of a sudden that, you know, this, the Germans kind of cottoned on, something's going on. They know something we don't, you know, they found out they developed and I'm sort of over sympathizing here, you. but they cottoned on. So they developed the four, the rotor, from yeah. septillion chance.
1: 92 septillion, septillion the
0: yeah. um I remember septillion, um, And we started losing ships ships. again. My my husband's grandfather was merchant Navy and his ship was hit in the uh, North. I think he was North Atlantic, I think. And he was the only survivor. And the only reason he was the survivor on his particular ship was he'd cut his finger and it was going septic and they had to get him off the boat. The next day his boat got hit and every single man went down and he never forgave himself for that. He felt he should have gone down with his friends. So you've got that human element to it. Very much. Um, And so they had to do something because, you know, I mean, we we see it with like countries like when Malta was being bombarded, they were on their knees needing supply. And
1: And they were sending convoys through and they were running whatever they could and they were losing quite a bit. Yeah.
0: So we, we, this had, this had to be cracked. And I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of the men who sacrificed their lives, if they'd known what they were sacrificing for, they would have been quite happy to, sacrifice yeah.
1: them well I, I don't think it Brothers. it's underst it's not overblowing it by saying that you know great britain at this particular point is really the center of gravity of the western allied war mm. effort all yeah. roads lead to great britain you, yeah. great britain is the ultimate aircraft carrier if you will all the Americans have come into the war. They need to ship millions of men over before they can mm-hmm. arrive back in, you know, in Europe. Yeah. They have to land somewhere, you know, uh, strategic bombing forces have to be built up, etc. So the only way you're going to build up this arsenal in England or, or in Great Britain is to secure the vital sea lanes which mm. allow you to bring it. It's 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 kind of like in business, you know? It's not so much the potential profit you're going to make, it's the cash flow that keeps your business going. Mm. And if your cash flow is pinched off at any particular point, you're going to go bankrupt. Yeah. And that was the great fear in 1942 that the Germans although eventually were probably going to lose this, would they be able to hit a vital artery? Mm before yes. And that was really the terror. And then when the four rotor, they brought the four rotor in, they, they gave it to the U-boats out in the Atlantic and immediately Bletchley lost them. Mm-hmm. They couldn't find them anymore. They didn't know where they were going, etc, generally speaking. And then what prompted Dieppe was they realized it wasn't just the U-boats.
0: Mm -hmm. That
1: surface vessels up in Norway, and more importantly, in the English Channel, were now being outfitted with the new four-rotor machine, even though they hadn't started to use it. It was kind of like everybody getting a new iPhone version, Mm -hmm. where knowing that once everybody gets it, the old one is going to be completely obsolete. And so that's the, the, the clock that's ticking, if you will, for the British. They know this nightmare scenario is about to befall them if they do not do something proactive yeah and this is what they were trying to do
0: so did they succeed did they get information that helped
1: okay now for those of you who want to read the book and (laughs) you don't want you just fingers in your ears right now uh, the simple answer no they did not they got very close But they got to the, as I like to put it, I put it in kind of North American football terms, okay? Um, They get to the goal line, and they try to get in on four different occasions to score the touchdown, and they are stopped each time. Right. And they end up, Fleming, sadly, has to go home empty-handed. But, of course, a 1,000 men have died in the process Mm -hmm. for this attempt.
0: And however, were missing in action or POWs?
1: About another 2,500. And
0: how so many you're in total talking, went? Pardon? How many in total went?
1: Uh, about 6,000. Yeah. Yeah. So and you're talking about 67, 000, 67% of the entire force just failed to return in one day.
0: And is that including the air crews?
1: Uh, no, yeah, the air crews to that. That's about another 100 and something mm-hmm. RAF planes, you know, that, that also went down, not to mention a couple of ships a yeah. whole bunch of landing craft. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's an extremely heavy butcher's bill yeah. for one day,
0: one day, you
1: know, one day. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, the air crew thing I was interested in being an aviation fan and uh, I'm not a fan of Lee Mallory. I, 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 I have never have been a fan of Lee Mallory. I think he's an idiot. Um, <laughs> I think he, he, uh, his whole big wing theory was, pathetic and i mean i personally i don't think it would ever have worked because it gives people too much warning you're all messing up anyway it was he he sent the fighters in and we're going to lead into the spooky side now because when i'd arranged we arranged this interview a while ago didn't we that we were we were going to be doing it and those of you who follow my page will know that i did an investigation at the haunted antiques center in Hinckley. Not so long ago, and that I think I contacted a former Norwegian fighter pilot um, called his real name was Per or Peder Bergsland. He called himself Peter Rockland, and he was actually one of the three men who escaped and survived Stalag um, Great Escape. You know, da-da, that the real one. Now I think I was talking to him. The weird link is. He was shot down whilst in a fighter plane on the Dieppe raid. Um, In fact, so was one of his Norwegian colleagues who was the other one to escape with him. And and that's when he became a POW because of Dieppe. And and I see when I started researching, knowing that we were going to have this talk, I was like, wow, that is some synergy going on. Yep. Because there wasn't thousands of pilots over there, was there? There was only a smallish...
1: Oh, there, no, there was almost a thousand pilots up in the air, but only a hundred were shot down, a hundred yeah. and a bit, from British, yeah. were, were shot down. And that's what they expected. Believe it or not, you're talking about Lee Mallory. He didn't want to do this operation. And he was, uh, the RAF, there, there, there's correspondence in the RAF saying, look, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. we know we're going to lose about 130 planes what's the purpose mm-hmm. and of course they said look it's kind of above our pay grade if you will we have to do it so yes, just there is your buckle, told. Up. buckle yeah. up we're going
0: yeah no i'm I'm not a fan of lee mallory i i i, I think he threw his toys out the pranum a bit during the battle of britain but that's a whole different conversation that's a whole
1: different set no no we'll oh, come back and we'll do that yeah we'll come whole back a
0: different thing Oh, it? it's, and there's, there's a reason why Douglas Bader liked Lee Mallory and it, it wasn't necessarily to do with the fact he was a great commander. Um, so that was the first spooky thing. And then I started looking into what we, we are going to spend the second half looking into. And I've called it the Ghosts of Dieppe. And this story, for a paranormal person, it's kind of, yeah, it makes sense. But I can understand for a lay person they would go, what the hell is going on here?
1: I know. This- and that's that's why I, I I wanted to sit down and discuss things with you. Because, of course, you know, I'm the historian. You deal with these things on a regular basis. And it's the same thing. It's it's mm-hmm. I found something in, in, in a place that I never expected to find it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And go ahead, but- tell them.
0: So now this story, this, sorry, this story, this experience has been investigated by the SPR, which most of you all have heard of. And it was actually in one of their journals. I think it was 1965, the journal?
1: Uh, 52, I think.
0: 59, June 69, issue 45. Okay. Well, that's what I've got it down as, issue 45, 1969. But the event itself actually took place in 1951. Yeah. Now what it was there was two ladies with their family holidaying in Dieppe near to the beach overlook, kind of overlooking the beach i believe overlooking puy
1: puy yeah the little yeah. place called puy
0: Little yeah. like p u y s Puy. yes now their names apparently have been changed yes in, I've,
1: I've wondered about that
0: yeah i, I have got I, I can understand almost why they would have wanted them changed because most a lot of people yeah. probably thought they were off their opus yes
1: yes of course Um,
0: but the names are dorothy norton and her sister-in-law agnes yeah now on very early at about 4 a.m their watches slightly differ but it's around 4 a.m on the 4th of august 1941 1951 sorry dorothy woke up to noises that she could not understand and 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 the the account gives them of being gunfire screams yelling bombs going off
1: aircraft coming down screaming down yeah. yeah
0: and shortly after she'd woken up Agnes woke up too and the two of them stood on the balcony of their building for something in the region of four or five hours listening to these noises um but the weird thing was nobody else woke up yet. Yeah, they said they were deafening it. it they yeah. said it was, and I'm kind of paraphrasing what they put in the report here. Yeah. She said it was like the battle was going on under them, but nothing's yeah. there. Now that is pretty darn for a paranormal sort of enthusiast. That is a pretty amazing experience.
1: It's pretty but, much like a lightning strike. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Now, what was it, I'm reading, i thinking all these things that I would be asking as an investigator to them. Like, how do you know that's what you were hearing? You might have, you, it might have been something going on at sea. They might have been drilling out at sea. Or I don't know, something that it could have been. But what was interesting was that the sister-in-law, Agnes, had been in the Navy, the women's, the Wrens, the women's Navy, during World War II and knew what the sound of a landing craft sounded like. She knew what the sound certain yeah. types of ships
1: Aircraft, gunfire. Yeah.
0: yeah. And she was able to identify those were the noises she heard. What was even more phenomenal is when the SPR started investigating it, they were looking at the times of Dieppe, things mm-hmm. like during the Battle of Dieppe, and the timings of what the women were hearing. They did vary by a couple of minutes, but they oh, wow. one of their watches was slightly out. And if they accounted for two or three minutes, I think out on the watches it tallied in almost perfectly, perfectly. to how to DEP happened. Yeah. That's mind blowing enough. But what I also found interesting was that Dorothy actually did say that she'd been awoken by a faint sound of this four days previously, but went back yeah. to because it wasn't as noisy, but it was similar sounds to what she heard, mm-hmm. albeit not uh, quieter.
1: Yes then suddenly everything erupts on this one particular day now the fascinating part is it's not on the anniversary no it's weeks before the anniversary would have been there doesn't seem to be any significance it's 9 years later or almost 9 years later mm-hmm. um but what is really telling and this or telling if you will uh, intriguing is not only the timings that seem to correlate with, you know, their their accounts correlate Mm -hmm. to or correspond to the the actual official accounts, but also the sequencing of events Mm -hmm. and the elements that were coming into play. Which is interesting. You know, it, it, it would be out the window if suddenly they heard trumpets. You know what I mean? You know, trumpets and cavalry just wouldn't yeah. make sense. Yeah. But you're talking about the sounds of ships, which one uh, uh, she identified as landing craft, screams of men, gunfire, um, they call them dive bombers, but at that particular point, you have hurricane fighters that are equipped for ground support that would have been diving down towards their targets. Um, and what I think is interesting, and it's not in the report, is none of them mentioned any heavy artillery. Right. Which there was no heavy artillery in the d raid. There were no battleships, no cruisers. The loudest, the loudest you would have heard is from a destroyer or the HMS Locust right. and it would have been more like a crack than a thunderous roar. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything but it's interesting if you're taking a look and saying okay for you know, for whatever reason these women may be making this up mm. fraudulent for some reason would they have that detailed knowledge of the action in 1951? Yeah they wouldn't you would have. And that was build. going to be my
0: question to you: Is how yeah. would people back home have known of that battle? I and mean, even if they they had been involved in one of the, the very few survivors or yeah. any of the POWs that had been oh. repatriated by them, how many of them would have known? And you would
1: have to either be. Was at, the
0: Canadian beach? Yeah. Beach. You said that what was it. Ninety-six percent. Ninety. Yeah,
1: ninety-six percent casualties. Yeah. yeah.
0: So the likelihood. You,
1: well, put it this way, you would have to be either in high command and still in possession of the timeline or the message logs <laughs> all those years yeah. later. Because to be honest with you, I can remember a lot of things as most of us can, but the the detail of timings and sequences, mm. that would be kind of strange to, to still remember To that degree of accuracy, Mm -hmm. unless you had access to the kind of material that you would need. And the only people who would have access at that time would be, I would say the upper echelons of the military, all aspects of the military or all branches. Um, And um, the historians, Uh, when I say historians, the official historians. So the official historians in England, the United States and in Canada would have had that information. But it wasn't public knowledge. And mm-hmm. even they mentioned, and what I appreciated about the investigation of the SBR is they said, well, wait a second. There, there was a pamphlet downstairs where they were staying mm-hmm. that did a summary of the Dieppe operation. And maybe they read it and they were reading into it, but none of the information in that gave any of the, this minute detail of timings, mm-hmm. etc. cetera. So unless either one of them had knowledge of this or we privy to this information and for whatever reason we're concocting this and of course you'd have to figure out what's the end game here yeah you know they're not trying to sell anything it was just they were really moved by this particular event and they felt that they needed to tell somebody um there doesn't seem to be any you know any benefit for them in all this Um, uh, unless they had some sort of detailed information, I'm still scratching my head as to where they came up with that timing. And I I don't know how you can just kind of make that up.
0: I mean, the only one I could have possibly thought of, and this is putting on my cynical head, is the sister-in-law who had the naval background had somehow seen it. But that still makes me go, well, why? And, And I mean, the only reason I could think of that I, I, I would have done it if there wasn't money, Terry. So it's not like I've got a book coming out, you know, and I want to get some publicity for my book, you know, or film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. only reason yeah. It could be is that she felt it was such an unfair, in, an injustice to the men who died, she wanted to bring it to the fore again so people would start looking into it. That was the only thing really, mm. I, I mean, I could yeah. see why I, I mean, not that I would do that, but I could see from a,
1: But again, it it requires that intimate knowledge of that material. And I would argue you would have to have it at hand with you.
0: Yeah. I mean, even when I'm doing these interviews, people can't see me because they're not watching it, but I'm checking sort of figures I've written in my notes and stuff, because I can't remember everything. I remember what I want to say, but I can't remember the the sort of final details and stuff. So, Mm. you know, I and there have been accounts of things like this. Now, whether, There's a couple of things this could be. Hmm. It could be what's known as a residual haunting in that it is actually happening all the time. But if you like all the stars aligned so that it went full on, Hmm. but that doesn't explain why only these two women were woken up if it was that noisy. The theory to that is that they could have been tuned, sounds a bit woo-woo, but they could have been tuned into the right vibrations. Like sometimes you've got some people who can tell somebody's upset and everyone else is like, what are you on about? They're fine. And you know, you know, you're in. You're picking
1: it up. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Or somehow, and and this is something we were talking about off air. When you think about the fact that a timeline isn't linear, it can, it's higgledy-piggledy, bends all over itself
1: the professional term
0: the professional term yes yes copywriting that term um trademarking it's mine um but if you think about if it's bending back on itself are they experiencing a thinness in the line and so they're hearing it but the line's too thick slightly to see anything but they're actually seeing the battle as it's happening in a bend back of time that's another theory um you know if 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 if, but it's the fact that the two of them were experiencing it that's what's weird i can understand almost one and then picking up yeah
1: but it seemed to be and the interesting part was as you mentioned before it was uh restricted to them Mm. because they went out and there was somebody else who was up at the same time and they communicated with them and they they asked him do you hear this and the person was just shaking their head
0: i think it was the nanny but, or something the children's it, nanny or yeah something and saying like and we have yeah. no
1: clue what you're talking about and the way yeah. they described it at first was they thought it was the storm out in the channel mm. that's the way and then suddenly it was extremely distinct sounds mm. they could hear screaming they could hear gunfire and everything so mm. they knew what it was it wasn't like what could this be and let's read into it and well maybe they did but that is, uh, you know, a, a, an awfully detailed and almost ninety-nine percent accurate account yeah. of how things went down in that area. Yeah. So, you know, unless for some reason this was a very strange summer theater um, <laughs> group that went awry, yeah, I have absolutely no explanation, and that's why you know, kind of getting back to what I said before. Um, you know, as an academic, as a historian, you know, you're always curious, hmm. you're cautious, you know, of course, I'm not going to simply, you know, accept anything that I hear is an excuse, but I don't, you know, it's fascinating to be able to, to push down that way there, there yeah. must be more I mean it's, it's like standing on the shores of, you know, Cornwall in England and looking out over to the sea thinking the earth is flat. You know, back in the you know back in the 1300s, and thinking, well, maybe there's something out there, but you know, mm. Mm.
0: <laughs> you yeah. know,
1: and that could very well be where we are.
0: That, I mean, there are there have been accounts. I, I wrote about one um, when I did an investigation at RAF Tibbenham in England, which had uh, liberators based there. Jimmy Stewart flew from there in World Two, yeah. and yeah. I'm the only person ever to have do, done an investigation there. And There was a little bit of nepotism involved. My dad's been a member at the club there for as old as I am so he kind of sweet talked my way in and my husband and I and a couple of friends of mine we found some stuff out which was phenomenal when we were there and we were actually able to find we got given the name of a pilot on a device and we found him my, Well actually it's my dad I thought it was just gobbledygook and I, we gave it to my dad and he found that this pilot had gone missing the date that we were there wow so it was pretty even you know even my dad the mechanical engineer is now kind of has belief in some of this stuff but one of the stories I got told by one of the pilots was um, there are no flying liberators in the UK, no flying B-24s. You are not going to get one coming over. And there's nothing sounds quite like a B-24 with their four engines. Mm. Even, even the um, Fortress or Lancaster doesn't sound the same. And the one of the pilots was there and he said he, all he could hear was this. this it sounded like a, um, a liberator struggling, like the engines were struggling, coming into crash land and he ran out of his caravan, there was nothing there, no sound, it gone, but he in mm. his caravan he heard it and he thought an aeroplane was about to crash land and he couldn't work out why because there's no liberators. Now obviously we, we know that quite a few did crash land because Tibbenham was part of the castle raids which was horrendous in, in World War II, they lost like two thirds of their aircraft if not more um, and quite a few did limp, A few those that came back, some of them did limp back and crash landed And and so those kind of sounds, those kind of if you like thinnings do happen but to have them to the extent that they had in Dieppe yeah is, is like you know hitting oil that that is like but well my- i
1: think that's the fascinating thing i mean i i think if the account was very simple along the lines of oh we heard something that kind of sounds like battle sounds mm. I, you know nobody would have you know, investigated it, nobody would have taken it, it even it, it, half seriously. Mm. But because of the, lo- the, the timeline, the sequencing and everything mm. else, for people who would, in theory, as far as we know, have no direct knowledge, let alone the, the, the material to draw upon mm. at that particular point to do it. Um, It requires further investigation, you know, it just it doesn't, you know, obviously we can't conclude anything I mean the other thing that they looked into the SPR was the possibility of auditory hallucinations. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, that doesn't explain the detail the fact that both of them are having the same ones both of them are corroborating each other uh, within with with I would argue. Acceptable discrepancies, in other yeah. words, if they, if they have everything down pat, you're like, mm-hmm. eh, it's a little suspicious. Mm-hmm. But these were just you know minor little differences that you would expect when two people are looking at or, or experiencing something, there's going to mm-hmm. be a bit of a difference to, to what they're saying. Um, so I always found that to be absolutely fascinating, and I know because I what I always found fascinating is I w- I filmed there mm-hmm. when I was doing my research for Dieppe uh, for the book. Not only were we doing I was I doing the book, but I was doing a, a, a documentary called Dieppe Uncovered, mm-hmm. and we filmed and we did reenactments right on Blue Beach, and we actually had blanks in the weapons. Right. And at one particular point, we just lit them up and said, OK, boys, have some fun. Yeah. And so the Canadians who were running up the beach were firing. The Germans who were on the cliff were firing down. And I found it really fascinating because it, it was the most unique echo and the most unique sound I have ever heard because of the concave way right. that the cliffs go. At least I'm assuming that's the reason. But it was a sound that it was very unique to the area something I've never heard of, uh, heard before or since, uh, the type of echo um, was was almost a, a signature. Mm-hmm. And although they don't report that in, the, in their report, um, again, I think, you know, w- you and I were talking before and I was asking, you know, because I've never dealt with this before with the SPR, I was asking whether the, you know, the archives would still be around because I would love to see the original report And if possible, track down the legitimate identities of these people. I mean, obviously, they're probably gone by now, or if not, they're around 100 years old, probably. Mm. But who knows, you know, what else they left, what other details they may have, you know, recorded somewhere or told somebody else and, you know, to find out if there was anything else that from a descriptive perspective, may add or detract, you know, in many cases. It may take a thousand bits of evidence to prove something. It may only take one to disprove it.
0: Yeah. Right? I must so, admit, I mean, I I have things that I would want to be doing from a paranormal basis at the beach in a very respectful way, not in a yeah. sort of um you know, screamy sort of some yeah, yeah, of the ghost shows way. But it, it astounds me that nobody else has reported it. And, and I, I searched to see if I could find any other reports, and no. I just I do wonder if the people who live there just don't, for some reason, don't feel comfortable reporting stuff like that. Whether it has to be tourists True. who don't have think, have to live here, I, I know this is going on on a yearly basis, no. ten yearly basis, whatever it is. No. Um. So you well, know,
1: or, or could it be that the people who there who were there understand what this was all about i don't mean the pinch perspective but the sacrifice mm. and even if it i don't know i mean it's a bit of a stretch but even if it does come back and quote haunt them it's it's a um it's it, it's a type of uh phenomenon that they would appreciate and maybe mm. they just figure there's no point in talking about it you know mm. it's just it is what it is or it's so overwhelming they don't want to say anything <laughs>
0: So. well i mean yeah i know that if you are like what they call slightly sensitive to these things going on a site like that would um
1: potentially trigger something. Right?
0: it causes you physical pain i know how i felt when i went to one of the, the 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 cemeteries in normandy and and i was being sort of almost pulled in different directions i i i was you know i'd be walking around suddenly i'd get a pain like someone had just hit me in the stomach another one i'd get one in my head and and it's overwhelming. So I suppose if it you, you have to learn how to put the barriers up if you're dealing with that all the time for people who live there, but it just it just surprised me. It was something that was that and unless that was just it's one it built up enough. Yeah. But it's it's why these two women.
1: Why them? Why are they the only one? Are they the only ones over the years? Maybe there's something in French archives. I mean, I I would still have to you know, you have to go back. You'd have to check with the French military. Was the French military or the Navy doing something that day Mm -hmm. that they couldn't see? Maybe there was an exercise that was thrown on. So in other words, go down all the rational avenues, eliminate all the you know, test them. Yeah. And then see if there's any veracity to any of those, you know, yeah. and start peeling away. Um, and I, I noticed that the SPR had done some of that. They would, have, done,
0: they would have been pretty thorough yeah. in their research. Yeah.
1: yeah, the most what obvious kind of kind location. Oh, they, they even thought at one point, and this was fascinating, they thought that maybe it was a movie. That somebody was playing a filming. movie in the area and it was seeping out of the theatre. The sound was seeping out of the theatre, but there's no theatres in the area. And of course, you know, in 1951, we're not talking about Netflix in your home, <laughs> you know? Or the round
0: sound or... Oh, no,
1: exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you're, very few people in that area would have had a television at that time.
0: Well, even if they were filming it in 1951, the noise wouldn't necessarily have been that. You know, yeah. you know, they didn't have as much ability to fake those kind of noises as we yeah. do now. Exactly. And that also doesn't explain why didn't the other people in the house hear it. That exactly.
1: And it doesn't explain these two women. The I precise I, timing.
0: Yeah. Which is fascinating. I, I find it I do find it, you know, as as the military magnet, as the you know, I'm nicknamed and stuff, I do find it fascinating. And it's but it's, it's also, intriguing. you know, I, I sound like I'm almost gleeful about this i'm not because so many men lost their lives so many men lost their lives and and that's something it's like is like when you talk about any kind of battlefield you, you you whether it's from sort of 2000 years ago or 50 years ago or or whatever people died people you know yeah. died Maybe, that. maybe
1: that's it. Maybe it's a way of I don't know. I mean, if we're if we're being spiritual for a second, and of course, I always caution my students, and I say that you know, as an academic, this is the way I I am, and I'm trained mm-hmm. in this. But there's also a part of me that is curious, mm-hmm. and if you know, maybe it's a way of them reaching out. You know, don't forget that's, us. Yeah. You know,
0: I mean, I were know. all the bodies recovered. For start, were all the bodies. Um, you know.
1: Well, I know that they've all either been assigned graves or, so no, not all of them would have been. Mm. So some of them would have been lost, washed out to sea. Some of them you would have assumed would have just been obliterated completely by a shell. Mm -hmm. Um, or otherwise, you know, their bodies would have just disappeared in some cases. So I guess you could argue there's a lot of unsettled or unrest, if you will, in the area. So, but that could be another reason. We're really getting into the ghost stories there.
0: Well, yeah, (laughs) it's what what you expect. But But it's fascinating. And
1: I I just hope that, you know, somebody, I mean, one of the reasons why I want to talk to you was because I'm hoping that this is something that, may spur somebody to actually do some research on, Mm. you know, on this and see if there's anything that can actually rationally explain this, even all these years. Mm. And, you know, I should probably tell everybody, the way I found this, this report was, you know, of, of the hundreds of thousands of pages I went through I never expected to find this in the Directorate of History and Heritage, which is part of the official historian's office of the Department of National Defense in Canada.
0: Oh, wow. And it
1: was because, because of what Dieppe meant to Canada, I assumed they were collecting anything and everything to Ooh. do with the battle. And I guess they must have got this. And they were like, what the hell do we do with this? <laughs> so they put it in a file and they just listed it as Dieppe ghost story. Yeah. And that's how I was just flipping through and I went, yeah, ghost story. And I called it up and I couldn't believe it. And I couldn't believe that somebody like, you know, the SPR actually investigated this.
0: Yeah. Well, if anyone listening to this knows any more about this, please do let me know. Reach out. Yeah, because I I think it is a case of, and, and this is something you would have to be incredibly sensitive, you know, doing some proper investigating on the site to see if, you know, using modern methods that we use now, we can pick up anything, you know, and I'd almost um, I'd almost be inclined to take like a good psychic out there, and not tell them where they're going and see if they pick it. That, I, that's how I tend to work with psychic mediums. I don't tell them what's happened on a place. I make yeah. them go blind and see what they pick up. So but it, it still doesn't explain why it was. I mean, for an event to have gone on for that many hours, that's a lot of energy it's having to use. Mm. But then again, you had a you know a lot of young, vibrant men killed. Yeah, that's that's a lot of energy in that. So, um, and you know, you 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 mentioned some of how they were cut down in your book, and it's awful. It's you know, yeah. it's war. It's war. I'm not saying that the Germans were bad for doing it, and or the the Allies were bad for it's war. Horrific things happen. Yeah.
1: Um, And certainly horrific things happened at Puy mm. on, you know, on August 19th, 1942. Mm. I mean, it was absolute hell on earth to be in that particular area.
0: So, yeah.
1: I mean, again, like so many things in research, um, we do not have an answer. (laughs) We have, we have a quest, but you know, that's it. I, I, well, I when guess. are
0: we meeting in Dieppe then, Dave? So we can look into this.
1: It will be next summer because next COVID summer? is eventually going to be defeated okay. like the Nazis were.
0: Okay. It, it will date. be. It's a Yeah, we've, we got, will go well, to we've,
1: got, we've got. Put it this way the Ardennes counteroffensive is coming, but that'll be the end of it for, for, for the virus. And by this time next year, everything is going to be back to normal.
0: Hopefully. Hopefully. It will be. we're going
1: to ensure that we win this
0: well yeah i'm double jacked i'm i'm doing my bit
1: you know yeah
0: well thank you so much for your time dave obviously anyone who listens to this or follows haunted histories comes back to me with anything else they know i will pass it on to you if you want to learn more about dave's work do grab his his book one day in august he's also got another book out seven seven days in Hell. hell yeah Um, And
1: And it has nothing to do with dying and coming back if somebody asked me at my book launch. (laughs) No. (laughs) Believe it or not. Yeah. They actually thought I had died for seven days and came back and this was my autobiography, but that's another story.
0: Okay. It
1: happens to, this one has to do with a unit, Canadian unit, the Black Watch, who were fighting in Normandy and it was their seven days leading up to, sadly, their massacre in Normandy in July 1944.
0: Yep. You see, Normandy, that's another one. When I tell people, forget about the beaches, learn about what went on when they went inland. Uh, and people are going, nothing really happened. Well, the Boca- oh, yeah. oh yeah and everything else. And it's uh, yep. a whole... Because I've had my own weird experience in Normandy. Um, so, And you also got, uh, hopefully, a new television show that you're part of to do with... Um,
1: Bermuda Triangle Triangle, but yes we're doing the first legitimate academic investigation into the disappearance of the American torpedo bomber uh, squadron or not squadron but flight called flight Mm -hmm. 19 they took off in December of 1945 and were never seen again And, of course, because they were never found, there's been a whole series of theories. Mm -hmm. Some of them have much more credibility than others. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was our job to get in there and kind of myth bust. And Mm -hmm. so it's coming out on American History Channel. And I'm sure it'll eventually make its way over to the UK and into Canada. And it's part of History's Greatest Mysteries. And it's um, narrated and hosted by Lawrence Fishburne. And, uh, yeah, which was pretty cool to have him mentioned
0: we're all part of the matrix
1: (laughs) yes exactly so there you go so there you go so somehow we're all connected but um it's coming out august 31st and uh we're keeping our fingers crossed it's the pilot and we're hoping it's going to go to series because there is so much to get into And it's so, it's fascinating. Much more than I ever expected as an academic historian. I never really thought, a lot of it, I kind of thought, oh, I can just dismiss this. I can get rid of this. I can, and then you get into it and realize, okay, this is going to require a lot more.
0: There's a lot of them, trust me. Trust me, we're dabbling in the paranormal now. No boy. (laughs) Well, again, thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate it. Thank you for
1: having me. It's been a pleasure, Um,
0: yeah, keep, keep an eye on day's work and say, if you've got any questions about Dieppe, if you want to ask me, I can filter them through. And if you do know anything about the hauntings, let us know. Please. Us know. Well, that's been this episode of Haunted History. Thank you so much for, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I'm not going to tell you who my next guest is because, well, you know, I like to keep it a surprise, but keep an eye on the Facebook page and Twitter and, and you'll see some of the announcements coming up. But on that note... Have a good evening, sleep tight, and don't worry too much about things that go bump in the night.